Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. My name is Owen O'Sullivan and today's guest on the show is author Danny Denton. Cork author Danny Denton, I should say. We can never miss a beat to claim our own. He is the author of a new book called The Early King and the Kid in Yellow. It features a very striking jacket. Probably my favourite book cover of the year so far, but it is only February, so I suppose we'll give it a few more months before I decide on crowning the winner in that category. The book is called The Early King and the Kid in Yellow, and it's published on Granta Books, the rather prestigious Granta uh, book, Granta Press. Um, they do a literary journal, they publish lots of new authors, uh, it's quite a big name, and it's quite a great coup for Danny to get published by them and hopefully it's the start of what should be a great year for him. The book is really, really interesting, I suppose is the first word. I really enjoyed it. It's a, a bit of a romp through this kind of dystopian, flooded, derelict Ireland where it never stops raining and it's kind of, I find it a little hard to explain the the plot but don't worry we don't get too much into it if you haven't read the book already we'll danny will kind of explain it we talk a little bit about the book we don't go too far in depth because obviously we don't want to spoil it for people so i think that you can listen to this without having read the book or with having read the book and hopefully you'll get something out of it the reviews have been pretty good already the irish times said that uh Mashing ancient myth with a, with a miserable future, Denton's fierce and distinctive debut should set the book world alight. The Irish Independent said his melange of Hiberno-English technological neologisms, <laughs> excuse me, uh, newly fashioned slang and obsolete archaic terms is original, poetic and beguiling, words which apply equally well to the book as a whole. So, yeah seems to be the start of something great for Danny Denton. I got to sit down with him a couple of weeks ago, just before the launch, which happened in Waterstones Cork. It was launched by Lisa McInerney, who the book kind of reminds me of. The Irish Times, I think it is, uh, compared it to Alan McMonagall's Ithaca, which came out last year, which I'd highly recommend as well. And yeah, if you're passing by Waterstones or Eason's or one of the more independent... Uh, bookshops in Ireland, maybe you could pop in and pick up a copy of The Early King and The Kid in Yellow. But if you want to get a feeling of what the book is like, you can just listen to our chat with Danny starting now. So, um, a week out, just about, is it two days or a week out from the release of your debut novel? It's it's a day and a, day and a week. A so day and Thursday week. So, the 1st of February. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you were just saying before we started recording that you've just gotten cats and you're kind of training them at the moment. What are you most nervous about? Like the reception to your debut novel or your cats going out cats. and getting into a fight? <laughs> the cat's not coming home. Yeah. Um, there's Yeah, because there's I'm not responsible for the book anymore. The book is responsible for itself now. But I feel like the kid, they're six months old. They're kind of still technically kittens and uh, I'm still responsible for them. So... <laughs> So the book will come and go, but the cats are, are here to stay. Yeah, the book is the, the book is a mature adult now out in the world. It's got to fend for itself. But but do you, do you kind of take on like a different uh, persona or a different attitude towards the book once it actually comes to release date? Because you do have to kind of push it, do interviews, do media, do like the whole social media thing of look at the latest review of my... 
book. Yes. Yeah, that's probably actually, you know, I am obviously nervous about the book coming out and that's the thing that's most nerve-wracking or, or that I'm most confused about in terms of, so I, I now use Twitter a lot more than I did a year ago because in the back of my mind I need to be, I need to give the book every chance because again, like it's when you, I think, and this is all very new to me and I'm changing my views as I go week by week, but this is all, this is all building towards a book being out there in the world. And I got it so far and now it's got to do its own thing, but I'm aware that I have to get people looking at it and I have to help it do its own thing. And you can't be Cormac McCarthy anymore. You know, you can't just, I don't do interviews. I just write books. I don't think you can anyway. I don't think your book will survive. So I certainly not as a debut novelist. Certainly not as a debut novelist. Yeah. So I've got to do my best. And so I've, I've, you know, for six to nine months or whatever, I've been trying to get my head around the best way to tweet, but it's kind of been really freaking me out the last few days because obviously there I'm getting little mentions here, there and, and in a few other places and you're kind of thinking, am I constantly just retweeting stuff about me? That's probably, that's a bad message and that's probably worse than no message. And then there's another point saying, well, you just have to keep, you just have to keep plugging it while it's new and fresh so that the word gets out there. And I just keep kind of spinning around in a bit of a daze trying to figure out what, what the best way is to approach it. Um, do you enjoy doing it? No. Or do you find, no, do you find it really, like no. a nuisance? I find it, I find it, I find more than a nuisance, I'm very self-conscious about it. Because if I look at if I look at someone uh, uh, if I follow someone on Twitter and I see them tweeting about their book three times in a day, I think like ah, give it a rest, will you? And yet there I am confronted with someone, you know, like for example, today I got mentioned in a tweet by Dubray, and I also got mentioned in a tweet by Waterstones uh, in Liverpool, and I thought I I can't do two retweets in a day <laughs> because, because I'm just going to be that person that annoys me like because you're not on Twitter just to see advertising right and that's what it what I am you know I'm trying to spread the word for my book and everything but really I'm advertising it so it's really really a brain a brain melter to try and strike the right balance between making sure you're doing the best for your book and not annoying people who have the you know good generosity to follow you on twitter uh, and listen to your thoughts on a daily or weekly basis depending on i guess like twitter twitter is the foremost social media i guess that w we talk about but um when it comes to something like this but it's so fleeting as well and like the way that the algorithm works is that you can tweet and like most of your followers will miss it because they weren't like online looking at twitter at that moment so it's like you retweet something at like 12 o'clock and then retweet something at three o'clock chances are that like you're not the same person isn't going to see both things yeah yeah so, and so then so it becomes they, like kind of uh, like a roulette or something you know what i mean you're like i'll just hit i'll just hit tweet and we'll see what happens and have, have you gotten like any guidelines or anything like that about how to like be an author on twitter or anything no, like that or? no and i was i was thinking the other day that uh that's something i i, I plan to ask so i'm meeting i'm meeting my i have this i have an amazing um publicity team in grant that are Grant, I've just been absolutely amazing from the start, um, and I, I'm going to see them on thir on Thursday, and that's kind of on my list of questions to ask. Like, tell me what, tell me what to do here, <laughs> tell me how to do this best. But certainly, there's a there's a career there's a career to be made for the you know like a Twitter coach or something like that for authors. 
because um, I think yeah it's a necessary I, I would love to ignore it and I would love to one day be in the position to ignore it but you, like you said debut author you can't you can't ignore it and you have to and it's not about your ego as such even though I keep talking about my own self-consciousness it's about like the book I believe the book is a thing out in the world that I want to get to as many people I want it to be read because it's nothing if it's not read Jeff have you steeled yourself towards like criticism like whether good or bad like not letting my ego get like out of control one way or the other I I'm possibly being very naive when I say that yes I am I think I'm going to be okay but my 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 reason is this it took me 10 years to get to get a novel published I got countless rejections for novels in that time so not even talking about all the short stories that have been rejected I wrote one novel before this one and I wrote this one and I probably got you know upwards of 30 40 rejections from agents then I got an agent then I got 15 16 rejections from publishers then I got dropped by the agent so I've I've gotten every type of rejection at every level thoughtful dismissive like mean uh, I've got I've I've had all the rejections and I kept bouncing back. So my fond hope is that in terms of criticism via reviews or you know like you know Amazon zero stars this was dog shit. Um, I feel like I'll be fine. Like I've been you know I, I should have a thick skin at this point. That's my fond hope. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, actually, and funnily enough, I was with drinking with two writers uh, maybe in September and they were talking about Goodreads. They were like, are you going to read your Goodreads reviews? And I was like, why wouldn't I read my Goodreads reviews? And they were like, that's the worst. Like, they're, it, Of all the things, that's the worst. But my position is still that I will read. And I, have, I think I have six Goodreads reviews at the moment oh, and I've read them all and I will continue to read them until the point that I have an experience that says... <laughs> that says to me, do not read your Goodreads reviews anymore. So is Goodreads like the common section of the journal for book writers? And stuff? It's just <laughs> common like the worst, is a terrible choice of words, people. Uh, I think it's probably, it's probably people, everyone in Goodreads probably reviews at their level. So if their level is to say, this was great, this wasn't great. If their level is to use curse words, if their level is to insult the author. You see, there's no um, filter. Oh, man so <laughs> good luck yeah yeah we'll see we'll see uh so like how does it work is it like you get you got an agent and then they start plugging the book for you sort of thing um yeah so so it is possible obviously you can self-publish you can submit the novel to maybe small independent publishers yourself i think the best way to go about it is to get someone on your side who's got experience um in dealing with publishers who knows what who knows what you know how to make a novel better before it goes out perhaps that's not the experience that's not the deal with all agents but often you'll have that um and so i always wanted and i always had this i always had this desire to be accepted by people in the business so i always wanted i thought my novel would only be good enough to be published if i could get an agent and if that agent could get me a publisher and if i couldn't get a book published in that way i probably didn't well, I didn't. Des I was going to say I didn't deserve to be published. But that's that's wrong. That's that because you can make you know you can deserve to be published and not be published. But I I probably I probably needed that kind of approval to have the faith in the book itself to actually want to publish something. So that's the way I went, and I never ever wanted to self publish, and I never ever I did say actually I did send it 
myself to publishers who who I thought were small enough um, to submit without an agent. So if I wanted to go to Granta, they're only going to read stuff that they get from agents. But if you wanted to try your hand with Lilliput, someone, you know, and Lilliput are brilliant, someone like that. I So I think I probably did send to a handful of people that kind of size. Um, but having an agent is really, really good, I think. Um, I'm now represented by Lucy Luck, and I wouldn't probably, I wouldn't be in the position I'm in, but for her taking me on probably you know so and she's given me amazing advice she represents half of Ireland so I think everybody will notice anyway but she just she gives you great advice she gets you the right deal she has faith in people not just the product so one of the, one of my fears taking me on was was she taking on the book or was she taking on the writer because if, you know an agent can see like oh that book I can get that book published but if he if, if it doesn't work out he's gone you know what I mean but she was taking on the writer and she has faith and she has faith in her writers rather than just going, here's a product I can sell and I'll ditch this person if the product doesn't sell. So she's like, yeah, she's all, she's got all the right attributes and she's fantastic. So I'm and grateful to her. Wh when did uh, Granta come on board? Because that's quite prestigious, like getting your debut novel published uh, by Granta. <laughs> it's, it's the dream. It's, it was my dream ever since, well, that's actually not that long, but it's been, been my, it was my dream for five years. I always wanted to get published and when I read um, Hawthorne and Child by Keith Ridgway, I wanted to be published by Granta. I was like, I, I want, I want my book to look like this. I wanted to get this kind, of, to have this feel. I, the, the what an amazing publisher! Kind of, I it opened Granta up for me. Um, and uh, how how I got Granta is kind of a long long story. But to cut it short, they were one of the people who rejected my first novel. Um, and it was a really, really strong rejection. I was uh, hoping you were going to say it was a really, really strong book. And they were wrong. <laughs> uh, it was. A, it had. It had strengths and it had weaknesses. That book, but but essentially, an editor um, and writer named Max Porter rejected oh, that book. Grief is the thing with feathers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is long before grief is the thing with feathers actually came out. Well, a few, two or three years before. Um. He rejected it and, and he kind of rejected it with a heavy heart and I thought maybe there was even talk of, of resubmitting with some edits and this, that and the other. And uh, he, we just, he was, he's a very generous editor uh, and he offered to meet for a couple of drinks at that time because, you know, I don't know like what, what the internal conversation was at Granta, but it felt to me like he might have wanted to take me on, but not maybe got an internal backing or maybe he just was... It was just close. Anyway, he cared about it and he got onto me and he got onto my agent at that time and he said, if Danny would like to meet for a drink to go just to talk about it, I'd be really keen to meet him and just talk about books and things. So we met up for a couple of points and we just kept in touch. Turned out like we had kind of the same favorite book and uh, lots of it. We just got on well. We're roughly the same age, things like that. Got on very well. He kept in touch. And so from that point on, I kind of, yeah, I kept in touch with him. And then when I had something nearly finished, I sent it to him. I said, what do you think? He said, geez, I want to see this. I want to see this when it's when it's done. He gave me some nice, like, kind of very broad editorial advice on it just as a reader. Um, And then by the time, by the time it got around to, I had, I had Lucy as my agent. The, all, all that was ever in my mind was, we'll submit exclusively to Max and Grant. I don't really want to go anywhere else if possible. And it just so happened that, that that's the way it worked out. So I got very lucky. Like 
not without loads of hard work and loads of rejections over years in between but yeah it was uh, and i've just been ever since i've been privileged because granted like they um i got i was often told when you sell your manuscript say goodbye to it like that's the end of your kind of role as a key decision maker you might get looks at different covers and they might ask you which cover you like the best but you don't really get much of a say typesetting things like that you're kind of on the on the on the periphery of the conversation but granta kind of held me right in the middle of it saying how do you envisage the cover of this book what do you think of like because there's a you know you've seen the book at this point there's kind of a few different typographical kind of adventures in it in terms of some parts are a play and things like that and how do you envisage that how should that look in the thing i was just in the middle of the conversation with them all i got to i asked for a guy called dan styles as a as a cover designer they were like what a brilliant idea let's see if he'll do it got dan styles like that yeah they've just been an absolute dream to work with so it's literally a dream come true when when did uh they give the okay when did you like submit it and they said yes feels like about 14 years ago uh, i sold it in september 2016 okay so about uh 18 months yeah 18 yeah. months ago that's crazy like that, that like <laughs> yeah that's it and it's only coming out now like do you get sick of it or are you like oh, i just need to move on or are you always like in it until like six months after it's released or something i almost you know when you're waiting for a bus and you're waiting the bus is like a bus errand bus 20 minutes late 25 minutes late half an hour late and there's a point where you think the bus is actually not coming it's never going to come um and then usually two buses come but it felt like that maybe so the first you know last september 2016 to maybe december 2016 were joyful and blissful and i had lots of work to do uh, on say we we started the process of editing and uh, copy editing and then there was a proofread and that kind of brought us right through to maybe Mar I think I submitted the f the f the proofread on March the thirty first might have been my deadline uh, and so then March two thousand seventeen up until a couple of months ago was just like is this ever going like this it's gone on it's never going to happen like you know um it's been too lot like it just you just forget about it and i had other things keeping me busy in terms of i was working on another project and i was working on another couple of i had a long essay that i wanted to write and things um and then suddenly kind of september 2017 it just started getting really busy again the publicity kind of thing kicked off i started getting asked to write a lot of small pieces for things um and yeah it just started getting quite busy then again so there was a big lull where I was like, this is, you know, it's never coming out. <laughs> and now it's like, it's actually on the table in Hodges Vegas today. So I don't know what the deal is with publication dates, but like now it's out there in the world fending for itself. And I just kind of have to try and keep, you know, keep pushing it for another month or two. And then just keep those retweets coming. Keep the re keep retweeting, keep hitting retweeting. That's cool. Like that's, a, that must be such an exciting feeling, like actually going into a bookshop, especially one like Hodges Vegas, which is, like so extensive and it's like on one of their tables yeah i think yeah. that's like a feeling that uh you know is unparalleled for i haven't well i haven't had it i've only seen a picture of it so um yeah it yeah i'll tell you the the best the best feeling so far i think i did a little like kind of sliding around the kitchen dancing the day we like agreed the agreed the contract with granted but the best feeling so far actually i 
I don't know where I got this advice, but someone said, if you, if you have the chance at all, go and see your book being printed. So when they're actually printing it in the big factory in the middle of nowhere in, in, in Greenbelt, England, ask them if you can go on, on the day that it's being printed or whatever. So again, I asked Granta and they were like, absolutely. Like, well, you know, a couple of them came down with the production, production designer uh, and one of the sales staff came down with me and we went down and you actually, you got a tour of the, you got a tour of this huge factory and there's all, you know, as a factory, there's all these conveyor belts and there's the sounds and smells of industry and you see the ink flying and, and they show you how it's done, how it's printed in these big massive sheets and they get cut down into sections and then they kind of, there's really hot glue that glues the back together and then another piece of glue that glues, glues the cover on and you, and it, it was just like, I was on the verge of tears walking around and, and not only that, but it's like you feel part of this world because there's my book flying off the table and then there's like, they were reprinting Lincoln in the Bardo because it had just won the Booker. There's Harry Potter's everywhere. There's <laughs> Brendan Rogers' autobiography at Celtic. And you're just sitting here like, oh my, I'm in this world. Like, this is my world now. Like, there's just books flying around everywhere. And, and, and here comes your, your little book that you spent, you know, whatever, three years on. And it's just there and it's a thing. Like, it was just, it was, A, it was fascinating. B, it was just life affirming uh, or book life affirming. I don't know, book affirming. Uh, I can't imagine that like the publishing process for uh, eBooks are as exciting as that. <laughs> are you going to go to the Published factory? Published to PDF. To, yeah. Can I watch over your shoulder on the computer screen as you put it together? <laughs> Great right clicking. Yeah, probably not. Uh, but it's, it's all like, it's all various levels of exciting. Even the thought like it was, you know, one of my friends in a WhatsApp group today was asking, who's who is, who's going to do the audio book? And I kind of cross, I was like, I know there's something in the contract about audio books, but I have no idea Ooh. if that gets done or when, maybe they wait for it to be successful before they do an audio book or just, uh, it's, uh, it, even that question was just, oh, there's another little thing to be excited about. Like there could be someone reading it out loud at some point. My, my first thought was Kevin Barry should do the audio book. Yeah, well, he should know. do all audio he books. Should, yeah, he is like <laughs> unreal at, unreal at uh, the old voices. There should be nothing published in Ireland that Kevin Barry doesn't do the audio book for. Is he one of the blurbs on your... He's not, no? actually, no. It seems like a book that would be right up his alley. Yeah, I, I don't... I, Let's get him a copy. <laughs> yeah, I... Yeah. The blurb thing was kind of. I I personally asked. I I personally asked Gavin Corbett, Mike McCormick, for a blurb. Gavin Corbett, sorry, and Mike McCormick for blurbs. And I think Max personally asked Lisa. So I just maybe it never occurred to someone to ask Kevin because obviously it would be an amazing blurb, and he's a, an amazing writer. He's also probably one of the busiest writers in Ireland. But it just as I know Mike and as I know Gavin, I said, "Would you?" And I just loved their work as well. I kind of said. Had they read the book before they agreed to blurb it? No, no. So, oh, okay. so yeah, that was the that it's it's an awkward position to ask anyone for a blurb because you a they've got to read it, b <laughs> you're hoping that they like it, um. So, but again, it's another necessary part of the thing, you know. And like they gave amazing blurbs, and they're they're brilliant writers themselves. So it's really really cool. Uh, just before we actually talk about the book, I don't think we've actually mentioned it yet. It's called The Early King and the Kid in Yellow. Um, just before we start talking about that, do you want to talk about like when you started being a writer? Like you've already talked about uh, writing this for three or four years, having a book, your first book rejected mm. 10 years ago or something like that. Is, so was it about 10 years ago when you 
were a writer, you considered yourself a writer? I'll give you the corny answer, right? I was down at my mum's house the other day helping her clear out some shelves and we found one of my fourth class copy books and there was about 15 poems in the back of it, all rolled down rip-offs, all called like the evil teacher, the evil dentist. Um, so that's one way to answer. The other way to answer is I started seriously writing shortly before, during and after I did my MA in writing in Galway in 2005, 2006. That's when I started submitting to um, publications, so like Sting and Fly and stuff like that. And I don't know what, how much there is to say about it. I think it's something everyone's familiar with at this point. Tons of rejection. You do it on your own. It's a bit lonely. It's nice to have writer friends to whinge about it with. It's a pain in the arse to everyone who's not a writer to win, when you're whinging about it. Um, and yeah, I one of the key lessons I, I learned during that MA was, or I was, I, I was given this piece of advice, you've got to have patience. I never really understood it, but I think about 10 years later when I was preparing to submit the novel that would get published, I realized how much patience it had actually taken. Um, but yeah, it's being a writer is the same as anything else, same as being a carpenter, same as being an administrator. It's boring, it's fun, it's difficult, it can feel easy. Um, probably the only difference is that you have to do it in your spare time. You don't get paid just for turning up. Is that difficult to do after you like come home from work? like to actually set aside a couple of hours to actually sit down and write. Yeah, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. Um, it's especially difficult at the start, but I don't even think about it now. So I, I work, I, I work, I write for an hour, generally an hour and a bit before work, an hour and a bit after work. Never less than an hour and more if I have time and and, if you, and I'm into something. But like that means getting up. Actually, thankfully, no, because you've seen I've got a very short commute to work. Um, I probably get up now around half past six. But when I was living, I lived in London for a few years and I would be getting up just shortly before six in order to get an hour done and being in work then for half seven and then coming, getting back from work at about six in the evening and trying to do another at the time I was trying to do two hours and even trying to like make sure I had a minimum of three hours a day but that's really difficult at the start the more you do it um the more like any habit the easier it becomes now it's time that I actually cherish I really enjoy it now uh, you enjoy even, writing even when the even when the writing is not going well I enjoy being up really early um I don't know it's because maybe it's I'm getting old but uh yeah, I enjoy being up early and I enjoy quietness and focus and things like that. But yeah, it's really hard, but all jobs have their really hard bits. So like, not going to whine too much. Uh, only positive things to say about the MA in Galway was Mike McCormick there when... Yeah, Mike time. McCormick. That's oh, where I met oh. Mike McCormick. He was our fiction teacher. He was amazing. Like back in 2006, he'd already released uh, the uh, notes on a coma notes from a coma yeah. first book of short stories which getting I only it in read, the head yeah. which I only read last year and they're like oh my god these what are a brilliant amazing. collection of stories like, like he he had an essay in um, Sinead Gleeson's uh, collection Silver Threads of Hope back in 2012 but I hadn't really heard of him before he released his uh, book a couple of years ago with Tram Press and it's just like this guy's a genius how is he like you know kind of a forgotten Irish writer for so long you wouldn't especially in Ireland you wouldn't think it could happen that a genius would be forgotten during their during their career like you know like um i don't 
I don't understand it. And, and it make it kind of makes me terrified because who else is this happening to right now? <laughs> Who's the Mike McCormick now that everyone's going to be going like, oh yeah, like Johnny Barry there, like wasn't he brilliant? Or Lisa Murphy, wasn't she brilliant uh, 10 years ago? But she, now she's just won something. So now we're all reading her again. I'm terrified. Like, who am I missing? And you kind of... I, I was. I think I one day I actually I started googling. I googled like Irish, Irish writers. I tried to go deep into this to f- figure out who, every Irish writer that had been published in the last ten years. Who have I not heard of, and and are they good? Um, because yeah, it's just it's mind boggling that someone who's written like especially like, notes from a coma in particular for me is one of it's one of the formative books for my own attempts at writing it's one of my the books i've most enjoyed in my life reading and it disappeared you know for a decade had, had right. you read them uh before the ma no i read it in preparation for the ma i'd never heard of mike mccormick oh, okay i'd so, never heard of him i just saw that he was going to be one of my teachers I, was like, I better read his book so like that makes the so ma like 10 times better because you're like this guy being yeah yeah, yeah 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 I uh, probably never would have told him told him that <laughs> at the time, but yeah, it, it 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 makes you really listen. Obviously, you know, it's 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 like you know, it's like Stephen Jared or bloody Roy Keane coming out and giving you a, a soccer coaching session. You're like, everything he says has got to be right. Everything he yeah. says has got to be true. Uh, but luckily, actually, Mike. One thing I would say about Mike's teaching style is that it's very, it's very hands off and and student oriented oriented or orientated so actually our opinions were actively sought and fostered you know it wasn't Mike McCormick standing around going I'll tell you what makes a great sentence he was putting it on the class what makes a great sentence so actually he was you know like all good teachers it was all about what the students were doing in the class and not about what the teacher was saying it's not about like losing your own personal style sort of thing or like taking on a generic type but this is what's right exactly this and that's like got to be really sentence. difficult for any creative writing teacher because you any any reader and and all creative writing teachers by default must be readers has their own personal taste and so it must be very difficult to teach 16 students who have who are all writing very different things and to be impartial and try to give them all the advice that makes them better students so perhaps throwing it back on the students and getting them to pursue what makes things better and trying to nudge them in the right in directions along the way it's probably the best best approach because you know someone writes a lot of historical fiction and you might you might not like books you might only like books set you might only like fantasy how you know you've got to be able to still help the historical fiction person or whatever you know so it's a it's a difficult job, I would say. Uh, have you stayed in contact with the people who did that MA, or do you know if any of them of them stuck with the writing, or if they got published or anything? I've kept in contact with probably I think there were fifteen of us. We were like we were the best of pals. That was probably my favorite thing about the MA. Actually, was just being around fifteen like-minded individuals for a year. We were all, you know, symbolically, we were all full-time writers that year. You know what I mean? We were all talking about books all the time. We were working on a writing. We had groups. We went to lectures together. We went to launches together and things. It was fantastic. I'm not, I'd probably be still be in very good contact with three or f- two or three, possibly four. Um, be in, 
occasional contact by email and things with maybe another couple. I know what they're all doing and where they all are. There were, there were a lot of, um, I think there was about half and half American, Irish, and one English, I think. Um, so there, a lot of people, we geographically dispersed afterwards as well. So hard to keep in contact. And a couple of them have published things and we've always kind of followed their careers and stuff. So, yeah. And I think... I don't know if they're all still writing. I would say the majority of them are still writing. You ne- it never leaves you. It never, yeah, yeah. It never leaves you. Like like biting your nails. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about uh, the early king and the kid in yellow. Uh, when did when did the idea come to you? Or when did like the whole load of ideas? Because it's an it's, it seems like a book that's loaded with ideas. <laughs> uh, dividing i'm going to divide my answer into a couple of things were always with me i don't know probably where they came from but for for example it rains throughout the novel i always wanted to write a long piece of work where it rained in every scene where it was just there was nothing but rain and i think that like it probably comes from blade runner is one of my favorite films the, the 1982 blade runner um and it always rains throughout that book so it's probably it probably comes from something like that um, but that that was always there, and so I, I kind of always wanted to write something like that. But where it probably where the actual novel kicked into gear was is in a doctor or a dentist's waiting room um, in London, I think. And I saw a Take a Break magazine, and the cover of the magazine was uh, this tiny, pale, skinhead boy holding a newborn baby and it, the headline was something like my uh, my dad's a 12 year old or I'm fa- a father at 12 something like that. so that basically this kid had had a baby with this girl well his girlfriend had had a baby and uh, but he was a dad at, at 12 and I thought whoa that's that bothered me for days what it would be like to become a father when you're that age when you're you know you're there's so much going on in your head and the rest of your body, uh, like, how could you even think straight about f- fatherhood and bloody blah? So it bothered me for ages. And I, I, usually when I, ha- I have a little notion, like an image or uh, I hear a line and it bothers me for a few weeks, I know it's going to become something. So, yeah, that's how, kind of how it started. It started possibly as a short story, I think. Uh, I was like, oh, I'll write a short story about um, this boy, like, in the days after he becomes a father and it was going to be in the first person and that was where i was i was going to try on the rain it's going to rain throughout this story and then just grew arms and legs and i realized i was telling from the the wrong point of view and then correcting that i realized loads of other stuff about it and it just snowballed from there did it get like a bit out of control where you were like okay i'm gonna to have to cut back on the on the viewpoints yeah there was like that that can be good and bad right so you can be writing something and think i need to try it i need to come at it from a different tack um and it can be really annoying because you realize i've wasted two weeks writing something but my initial thing i I think i ended up writing 80 or 90 pages of this boy remembering something from his childhood and it was remembering becoming a dad at, at 12 but he was now an old man um and I kind of realized 80 pages into this, and I don't know how many months, but a significant amount of time. This, I'm not I'm not sure this is the way I want to do it. And I switched. I said, I'm going to take a break from it. I'm going to write something completely different. 
and I wrote something. I had I've done a lot of admin work in my life, and I wanted to write something about an admin guy um, going insane. So I started trying to write that, and lo and behold, I started writing loads of the first the boy project into the office project. There's no point in talking now about how they intertwine because it gets really weird. But they started like they started the two pieces were in conversation with each other, um, and. I kind of then ended up writing myself into two dead ends. I was like, I've written 80 pages of one thing, I've written 50 pages of another thing, and I can't figure out what I'm trying to say or do. And um, I happened to be, um, happened to be living, well, we were, myself and Rachel went to uh, Buenos Aires for a summer. She's got Argentine roots, so we had this opportunity to go and live in a house in Buenos Aires for a summer. We were doing that. So I was like, again, living the life, full-time writer, sitting in cafes. And I kind of just, I saw a couple of kids going through bins and I saw this kind of elderly gentleman harassing them. And he kind of had like, he had a bit of a limp and he had one shoulder was lower than the other. And he kind of, one eye was higher than the other. It was a bit of a kind of a strange looking character. And then somehow all the ideas clicked into gear and I just rolled furiously for a long time and ended up with, way too much and i had to like you know you're talking about a lot going on there there was even more going on there at one point it was at least 70 pages longer with a whole other narrative that i realized ultimately was not necessary um but yeah i that that kind of tripped the switch for a whole lot of mess and and at the end of it there was a manuscript and at the end of the editing of that first manuscript there was a proper manuscript and then it was all about just getting it, honing it from there. It's like a book of the world, like born in London, developed in Buenos Aires, finished in Cork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anywhere else? Uh, yeah, we lived in uh, Catalonia for a year. Oh, <laughs> so cool, it, was, wow. it was actually most of it would have been like the, the honing would have been done in, in Girona and Catalonia, yeah. Uh, so really, yeah, it is a book. I've been carrying around with me for all, to all sorts of places. Uh, I, I read your essay in Granta, uh, Faltering song oh, you yeah. published last week. Uh, I noticed that you did mention a wedding in Catalonia. Uh, any thoughts on like what's happening at the moment? Do you pro independence? Uh, boy. <laughs> quick answer. There isn't. There's no quick. Lightning there's red. no quick. There's no quick answer. Um, I am possibly pro independence. I'm leaning. I lean more towards independence. I think it's an absolute disgrace the way people trying to vote were treated. I think it was disgusting. Um, watching you know kind of people get bullied out of voting booths was like just another sign that we live I think in a in a dystopian world now it's not something it's not a bad future to come we're there um, but I also think that there are arguments um, from the Spanish side that are valid and I think that I'd be very interested it'd be really interesting to see into the minds of everybody that was pushing for independence and see how many people that are pushing for independence are doing it for cultural historical reasons rather than say perhaps um reasons of power and, and economy but i as i said i think i lean more towards the independence side uh, and i think i understand something about where it comes from in terms of you know how poorly catalonian people were treated um in, in in recent Spanish history, but that's you couldn't answer it. 
You couldn't answer. It'll take it'll take decades for <laughs> yeah. people who know about it to answer it. Save that for the political podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you want to like try and ex- try and explain it to people? Do you want to explain like what the book is about to people? The short, like maybe the short version, the short like synopsis selling. The re- the really short version, which is what I'm telling people telling people in passage where I'm from, is um, it's about a 12 year old boy who kidnaps a baby and goes on the run, and then. You can add a layer to that and say it's set in an Ireland that's not quite here. It's it's an alternative Ireland, maybe slightly into the future. It's not it's not too futuristic either. Um, and it rains all the time in that Ireland, so things look a bit different. Connacht is a series of islands, and Cork and Dublin are kind of Venetian slums. Um, so it's just in a kind of a slightly strange setting. Um, and in terms of th- a thematic kind of elevator pitch uh it's about how we tell stories and how facts everyday facts become myths over time oh okay uh i had like my my quick thoughts about themes were like a love story a coming of age tale oh uh, yeah it is actually a love story as well yeah yeah (laughs) you i was right Uh, and like a dystopian like do you see it as dystopian it is like yeah this. yeah i think it's dystopian but i want to i want to add and this might become like a, a drum that i beat i want to add that it's not without hope because i think when when certainly when you say dystopia you think of bleakness and you think of hopelessness and certainly when i've been kind of reading the goodreads reviews <laughs> there there's a lot said about how bleak it is and that's true it's like the setting is bleak some of the actions are bleak some of the characters lives are bleak but the whole point of it is that uh, love and hope and brave her- heroic acts are possible in a dystopian world so hopefully it's it's positive as well uh, do you think like this were you kind of wary about writing a dystopian ish novel it seems like they do seem to be like more popular yeah and then obviously you've got the whole overtones of political of like where the where the world is going at the moment like it seems like dystopian people are kind of like no no it's not yeah it's it's you're you're right and it's kind of a really awkward question because i absolutely well i was almost embarrassed and i didn't use the word dystopia for a long time because when you use terms like dystopia you're you're keying into um to trends right so the dystopian novels hot like in 2015 but it's not in 2017 2018 and people are going to start looking at other words to describe it because the dystopia is no longer a good word to use so i actually didn't when i was submitting it i never ever once wrote the word dystopia but it kind of seems i'm at the point where it's pointless to say that it's not dystopian because it's set in a world where things have gone wrong you know um to deny that is kind of to start getting very semantic about the thing so yeah i was i was wary of the term but that's the world that's that's the world where i discovered the story and i can only represent that world um I, I guess it's almost become a cliche. Like if you write a book and it's set in the future and the future isn't like a utopia, then, you know, it's either this great thing in the future or it's a dystopia. Yeah. yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's almost cliched um, to, to just call something dystopian. Probably lazy. It's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's, I don't think, I, I don't think it's lazy because it's an accurate term, but it, 
What's interesting is why is dystopia popular? There's something in the collective consciousness that yearns for it. Um, it's kind of like when you're watching a superhero movie and you're like, I want the bad guy to win. <laughs> I haven't had no. that experience. No? You didn't yeah. watch like uh, the second Batman film with Christian Bale. Uh, oh, okay, with the Joker. Yeah, you yeah, want yeah. the Joker to win. No? Yeah, actually, you're, he's definitely more interesting. I probably, yeah, I probably had more. Yeah, I was rooting for the Joker. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. <laughs> it mostly relates to superhero movies where you want the bad guy to win. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I don't know, like, but like, forget about, forgetting even about dystopia, like, why was Angela's Ashes so popular? You know what I mean? People, there's a, there's a grow in us for, for misery. Um, and I, I've been thinking about that kind of in the, in the run up to this and knowing that I would have to try and talk about books or my book. Um, wh why do we read? Why do I read? I read for... I read for pleasure and I read for insight and insight can be like, it can be knowing that someone else feels the same way. It can be learning something new about the world or, um, it can be, you know, just hearing someone else's thoughts on something. So insight can be, you know, fractured into loads of different things, but maybe dystopia gives you some kind of insight or something into how things if i know how things could be could go wrong or maybe they're a way of talking about what's wrong now by projecting it on the future or something i don't it's it's hard to say but it certainly seems to be a popular thing i didn't write i, I wrote it because that's the way it came not because i wanted to write something that might sell um but there you go yeah because like you have uh like a, a little way in i have page 61 here where you're talking about uh a business plan sell people what they won't admit they want which is drugs no, it's dystopia it's dystopia. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and and then you say we became the crooked nation so i guess that is kind of like you're looking at the world now and just imagining it like a few degrees this way yeah yeah and th so there's one f one strange thing um when i didn't do much research for the book but i i read a book uh Maybe in 2000, I read a book long before this existed, even the idea for this is maybe 2009 or 10, I read a book and it was about history of Ireland in the 70s and 80s. It's called Down, Down, Deeper and Down by Eamon Sweeney, who Sounds writes... like an uplifting read. It's grim, um, but it's absolutely amazing and very insightful. Um, and it's by Eamon Sweeney, who does the sports column in the Sunday Independent. Um, I, yeah, it's just, it was a, an absolutely fascinating book. But when I was deciding what because the most fun i had writing my book was building the world um the story of the kid kind of like it was something that i discovered more than i felt like i invented but i knew i was building the world as i went along and i kept thinking of this book that was a history of ireland in the 70s and 80s so just to like a really crude picture of ireland in the 70s and 80s obviously you've got um you know massive recession and unemployment and stuff but you've got the guards were called the heavy gang because they were so corrupt and heavy-handed you've got i think there was a 19-week postal strike so imagine no post delivered for how many months there is the Kerry babies which has come to light again uh, recently there was uh moving statues you know a hundred thousand people down in west cork staring at a statue that, that, that was 
claim to be moving them. It was there was a drug, you know, there always have been, it seems, drug wars in Dublin. There was Limerick was Stab City up until the nineties. There was huge corruption, huge corruption um in government. And that's all like 30 to 40 years ago, right? Describing like this year. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, 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 it repeats and repeats. But I, I, one of the things that struck me reading this history of Ireland in the 70s, I was like, this can't be real. Like, what a weird, horrible place. Like, that was a fall. It was a fallen world. Uh, so I started actually, and, and just to tie in with another thing about Blade Runner, there's a, the, antagonist the baddie and it's a baddie that you root for because he's really the goodie Roy Batty uh, in Blade Runner is played by Rooker Hauer there's a documentary that Rooker Hauer did years after Blade Runner finally became successful and he said the fascinating thing about Blade Runner and the world of Blade Runner is that in it the future is already old so it was a rare sci-fi movie where you were looking at the future but everything was ruined and derelict and rubbish and it had already, it was a fallen future. And that, again, that stayed, that was in like, that was almost like tattooed on my mind writing this book. I wanted to write a book where the future was already old. Um, but that kind of tied in with this, I can use all this stuff from the 80s. And that's where my my, my moving statue came from. That, that was based on the 80s. And the kind of, the drug epidemic. Muscle strike. And the postal strike, they're, they're all pulled from the 80s. So it kind of became this very strange thing where I wasn't looking forward at all. I was looking backwards and around uh, trying to build this world. So um, We'll just talk about the form of the book as well, because like as these narratives are kind of uh, happening, there's kind of three separate narratives that kind of come together, I guess. And then you have the play as well within the story did you try writing it all as a play and would you uh think do you think of it as perhaps something for the stage i didn't try writing it all as a play i have no idea if it would work on the stage it wasn't built that way with that intention sort of um the idea the idea around the different things so you kind of have yeah you have the the personal testimony of Ward, which is always almost supposed to be kind of memoirish. You've got the kind of more novelistic uh, third person thing from O'Casey's point of view. Um, you've got the kid story and you've got the play. Um, so I'm fascinated by how story, it, like it's this is really boring and cliched to say, but I'm fascinated, fascinated by how story works and how we're essentially a species trying to explain itself to itself all the time. On, in every format, on the news, in books, in novels, in plays, in poetry, in statistics, in science. We're just trying to explain ourselves to ourselves all the time. And I'm fascinated. I'm, 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 uh, you know, I'm a sports fan, a GAA man, and I'm fascinated by how folklore begins, like, at the side of a field. So I'll be down in passage watching a Hurling match and... Um, Alan Keane scores three points from play. And he's having a really good game and someone says, Jesus, he's, he's as good as two players, you know. And he might go on and he might score another goal. And by the time you get to the pub, Alan Keane scored 110 from play, carried the whole team on his back. And it builds and builds. And 40 years later, who knows what they're saying about him, 
you know what I mean? Like that if we had golden toenails or something, but, but it, so it strikes me that that's where story, that's where story begins. Like Dermot Healy used to say, the fiction begins at a neighbor's, in a neighbor's kitchen or a neighbor's table, I think. Um, and it's, it's, it's like that fiction, fiction begins or myth begins and folklore begins by the side of a field or by the side of the road. Um, and we, you, a really bland example is something like say the Easter rising was a, a, a real heroic event that happened 102 years ago almost and it's been retold in story song plays historical books documentaries history books statistics and it's been and and in, and in a million different ways there are things get left out that we go back to and we you know it was really important you know we looked at the feminist role in it a couple of years ago finally got to that and so it, it fascinated me that what if i took one event a boy kidnapping a child and i looked at how it would have been represented 80 90 100 years later and so that was where i came up with they tried to tell it a million different ways and so that's why so these these kind of pieces of paper that are kind of flung together like bits from a play there was well they must have made a play of it here are some bits from a play here are some bits from a novel here's my own testimony uh, here's some of the poetry, like lines of the poetry that were said and stuff. So I just, I thought it would be really cool to try and build it like that. I never, I, I, I didn't write every scene as a play. I just sometimes got to a scene where I was like, this, this would, this would be cool as a play, and this was maybe part of the play. Um, and two of the characters who were kind of trying to show you the world, Sissy and Kurt, they felt like fun characters to hear on stage rather than to be talking in in a pub in a novelistic pub and things like that. I was thinking of it like Cheers, you know, like Norm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that, yeah. That's why I was writing it, <laughs> like Cheers. Uh, you mentioned earlier just that you're kind of working away on a few essays and stuff like that. Like once you're kind of announced that you're releasing your debut novel and Skimmy on Grant and everything, uh, do you find that like the emails pick up that people are like, "Oh, will you write for this? Will you do this for me?" You know, are they kind of keen to anoint you as like the next? part in like this uh like golden age of irish writers they want to keep the idea going it's not my experience so far but this novel is people haven't seen it yet you know what i mean very few people have have seen it um i got some gigs writing via the publicity team in granta so they're going out to say they're going out to for example i'm recording something for bbc radio 4 uh, on thursday and that was that was the publicity team of Grant going out and saying, "We've got this new author. We're trying to get his name out there. He'd be interested in doing this. Have you any interest?" But in terms of people emailing me out of the blue, going, "You know, will you write? Will you write a thousand words on X, Y, or Z?" That's not happened yet. Um, I don't know if it happens. Uh, I don't know how I feel about it happening. Uh, it could be good. It could be a distraction. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it hasn't happened yet. Uh, so what are you working on at the moment? Next book? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of hiding. I'm kind of hiding from the next book at the moment because I I know it needs it needs. So I'm at the editing stage. I've got a, I've got a draft done, and I know it needs a significant amount of work. And I'm a, I'm afraid I don't have the answers at the moment. So I keep putting other things first, like smaller projects. I got a, in a long essay I wanted to do on rain. I finished that and I kind of then said, right now it's time to go back to the novel. And then I was like, oh, I'll just try this little short story that's been knocking around my head. I'll do that. 
Um, and this kind of this week and last week, it's been very administrative in writing wise and trying to get a couple of these small pieces finished. I, have, uh, I had a piece for um, the Metro paper in in England, and it, uh, it's like the free paper you get on the tube. And I wanted to have that kind of. I'm trying to do everything. I'm trying to still do everything well. I'm trying to not lash anything out there that I haven't worked on really hard. So I've been distracting myself. But the 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 main project is trying to finish the manuscript for this new novel. Um, and yeah, I just need to brave up a bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you've got the launch of this coming up. Uh, Lisa McInerney launching it in Waterstones in Cork on the 1st of February. So, I mean, all that exciting stuff is to come. So you get to have like some fun as well before you get back to like yeah, the yeah. editing desk. Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I am, I am, I'm enjoying it. it it's, it's a nerve-wracking time, but it's kind of good nerves. Like it's kind of fun. Um, do, you, do you want me to leave you a review on Goodreads? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and I'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll read it straight away. I can promise you that. Cool. Uh, well, listen. Best of luck with that. It's called "The Early King and the Kid in Yellow," and it's released on Granta uh, probably by the time people are listening to this, so they can get it wherever. Thanks cool. a lot.